This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name is Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. We have an awesome episode for you today. You are going to meet someone who has written an incredible book. It's a New York Times bestseller. This is a book that Gary Keller recommended to his high-level mastermind that we all read collectively. Jay is a huge fanboy of this woman. The woman you're going to meet today is a world-renowned psychologist. She studies grit and success at an extraordinarily high level. She's advised the White House the World Bank, NBA and NFL teams, Fortune 500 CEOs, the list goes on and on. This was something that was originally recorded as part of our monthly One Thing webinar series. Every month we try to feature an incredible author and give you direct exposure to them. You'll hear at the end of this interview, we get into live Q&A where the questions we were asking were driven by you your feedback. So if you want to find out who our next upcoming guest is going to be, you can go to the onething.com slash webinar and check that out. And with that, let's get into our interview today with the author of the New York Times bestseller, Grit, Angela Duckworth. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is, Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. For people who do not know what grit is, what is grit and why is it important? I'm a psychologist and I study high achievers. I find that a common characteristic, in other words, something that achievers in every domain that I've studied share, is this combination of perseverance and passion for the long term. Uh, People who have stamina, both in terms of their effort, but also in, in terms of their commitment, they don't switch directions uh, you know, every month or year. This is the quality I've called grit and uh, other people might have other names for it. But as a researcher, that's what I've been calling it for the last 15 or so years that I've been studying it. Awesome. Awesome. And why is it important? So you know, the, the fact that these high achievers have this quality in common then leads you to ask the question like, well, why this quality, right? Why not extroversion, right? Or or why not, you know, mathematical ability or something? I think that no matter what you're trying to do, if you're trying to be great at it, really in, in, in anything that you can imagine a human being would want to do, even, you know, being a friend, right? Or cooking a really great roast chicken. I mean, it's going to take time and it's going to take lots of at-bats. And, uh, and I think there is just this like fundamental no shortcuts aspect of excellence. And, and therefore the individuals who have more stamina are the ones who are still in the race when, you know, when other people are no longer competing. Well, you, you said multiple at bats and then you said uh, cooking chicken, which made me immediately think of my wife thinking of me in the kitchen, which is like, oh, this, this boy needs lots of at bats and lots of mops. Yeah, I think I mixed all my metaphors up there. So yeah, that sorry about that. Work. Don't get them confused. Don't don't cook a at bat or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Now I remember in the book reading about the determiners of success. And grit was way at the top. Why do you think that is? You know, it's not the only thing that matters, right? I, you know, luck matters. I don't study luck. In fact, I don't even know how you would study luck, because luck by definition is random. Yeah. <laughs> like I, a true researcher. I know, right? Sounds like a sounds like a professor, but it's true. Like, how do you study something that's random? Um, yeah. But but you know, obviously, luck matters. I mean, we all have um, our own personal experiences, how days that we were unlucky, times in our life that we were lucky, um, opportunity. I mean, 
when you get brought into the world, you get brought in as an American or as some other nationality. You're born a girl or a boy. What race are you? How much money does your family have? How able is your family? And I would say that I don't study that either, but it's not because it doesn't matter. So why is Britain, you know, among the, like, why is it on the list of, of things that matter? Why is it top of the list for, especially for high achievement, you know, for things that are, you know, grit isn't that important for like getting your taxes done or like doing your homework if you're a kid, you know, getting to the gym. There are other things like conscientiousness and self-control that are really more important for that. But for those people who really want to be excellent at something, I mean, who really want to master something, you know, I think that's where, you know, the stamina over the long run, it's not a short-term thing. Like the the race itself is a long one. And therefore, I think that's why it's especially relevant in those high challenge, high dropout arenas. Awesome. Awesome. Jay did a good job of putting this out to the Facebook community and saying, hey, guys, what questions do you have? And we want everybody who's here live to submit questions as well so that we can interact with Angela on your behalf. If I'm that person where I'm going, all right, I'm not a gritty person. When I face adversity, I only do it for so long before you know it. I just, that, that's not my style. What do you say to that individual? How can you develop grit? So first, I would want to know if this person wants to develop grit. You know, I recently did a survey of uh, 301 American adults and we asked them, you know, like, well, first they took the grit scale. And so they had some ability to reflect on how much passion and perseverance they have. And then we asked them, you know, would you, would you like to actually have uh, more grit? And I will say this, nobody asked to have less grit, mm-hmm. but, but some people were, were fine with how much they had. And, and that suggests to me that, yeah, there got to be people out there who say, yeah, I give up on things fairly quickly or my interests change all the time, you know, but they're not, they're not really bothered by that. I don't think there's anything immoral about not being gritty. I do think there are a lot of people who would like to be more devoted to something um, mm-hmm. and, and to be, you know, resilient and all the things that they, they think um, they might not be right now. So for those people, right, for those people who do want to change and to grow, I think the reasons why people are not as gritty as they would like differ by by person. And in particular, I think the, in, you know, in the book, I say this, if there are four things on my checklist that determine your passion and your perseverance. For passion, I think if you don't have passion for what you do, there's probably either one of two things that might be lacking. And then for perseverance, there's other two other things. And so that adds up four. So for passion, I think you either um, have lost interest or never had enough intrinsic interest in what you're doing, mm-hmm. or you don't have a sense of beyond the self purpose or meaning in your work. Interest and purpose are the two drivers of, uh, of really deep motivation. And when I sit next to somebody on a plane and I say, you know, do you love what you do? which is my favorite question to ask people when I'm on planes. I, I know by the reaction time, whether they do love what they do or not. And when that answer comes back, you know, lightning quick without any kind of um, equivocation and you probe a little bit, you know, these are people who are curious and interested. It's like they love their thing, whatever. It's usually very specific. And usually, by the way, I'm not that interested in it, but they are. So they tell me all about it on the plane ride. <laughs> which is uh, one reason not to ask that question. <laughs> um, but, they, but they also feel like it's, it's purposeful that, you know, that when they get hit by a bus or they think about what their legacy is, they're going to they're gonna have made an impact on other people's lives through this work. So if you don't feel like you have passion, you can ask yourself like, well, which is it? You know, do I, do I lack interest in this kind of in a curiosity level or does it not have a value for me in terms of my personal contribution to, to the world? On perseverance, if you feel like, look, I've got the passion thing covered, but perseverance is really where I fall down. I think there are two two elements of of this, and one is, you know, are you capable of doing daily deliberate practice? You know, like constantly trying to get better, never being satisfied, and very intentionally, effortfully working on one thing every day to be better at what you do. I think there are a lot of people who will not check that box off the checklist they're comfortable and they don't really actually want to put in the amount of effort um, and the uh, they don't have necessarily the 
capacity to like listen for feedback and, you know, oh, you know, this is the way your podcast could be better. I mean, you know, if you guys are hungry for that, great. But I think there are a lot of people in the world who are like, I don't really want to hear how I can be better. So that's a, that's a box, right? So if, if you, you feel like you struggle with perseverance, it could be you, you, you have to work on being able to practice deliberately. But the last thing on the checklist is, um, is resilience or some people might call it optimism. And then more recently, people have talked about growth mindset. And I think all of these things are related. Essentially, what I think for a lot of people is the struggle is that, you know, when things are going fine, great. But when things are not going fine, right, when the company you're running is not going well, when, you know, the last two people you hired were not the right people, when you have a really bad quarter, you know, what, what is your psychological reaction? If you feel like you are not the resilient, optimistic, positive person that you would like to be, I think there's 50 years really of research that says that uh, there's a neuroscience behind this and there's a psychology behind this. And um, you can actually teach yourself to be more optimistic, um, more positive, more focused on change. And at the core of that is um, changing your beliefs about like the nature of human beings and uh, convincing yourself using, in my view, neuroscience data, that human beings are actually designed to be learning their entire lifetimes. We really are. I mean, it's amazing. The brain is the most miraculous thing in the universe and it never stops changing and growing uh, new connections, uh, re-sculpting connections throughout your entire lifespan, no matter how old you are. So that helps, I think, because then when you have a bad quarter or a bad couple, you, you know that you're a learner, right? Because by virtue of being human, you're a learner. So anyway, that's my checklist. Interest and purpose, uh, capacity for daily deliberate practice. And then finally, um, you know, a belief in your ability to learn no matter what happens. I'm kind of surprised, Angela, that skills not on that list. Like I watch my kids and they get really passionate about something, but if it's a real struggle for them, sometimes they'll say, I don't like this anymore, right? Just when it gets hard. Yeah, well, so my question would be like, is it because like practice is really hard and it's effortful and tiring and they would rather be playing, you know, Candy Crush or something, or, or is it more um, like they are discouraged? You know, not not saying this is true of, of your kids, but like, or are they more like discouraged? Like they've kind of lost hope that they're going to actually be at, like as good as the other kids. Which of the which of those do you think is what you're getting at? Oh, I just I guess I was using that as a hypothetical. I'm not literally thinking about my children. <laughs> um, my my daughter might be the grittiest of all of us. But then you look up and I know a lot of people think that, oh, I'm not very good at this. And so maybe that's the person, maybe that lives on the perseverance side, right? That idea, you know, I feel like when you like things, you practice more and you even have that formula, right? That talent, time, sure. skill. But I think a lot of times you, when you love something, you practice at it more too. Yeah, I definitely think there's this positive cycle where, you know, you get good at something and right. you get a lot of praise and you get a lot of attention. And, and honestly, if you go back to childhood, your parents start paying attention to you. And, and there's nothing a child likes better than their parents praising and paying attention. Oh, you're good at math, them. Angela. You're so good at math. Right? right. It's like, oh, math. Right. And, you know, comedians say this about when they were young, you know, it's like how they become a comedian. Well, they started telling jokes and, you know, they got a little more attention than the rest of the kids. And like, boom, they were like, that's that's what I'm going to do. And then, of course, you get better. Mm -hmm. telling those jokes or, or math, whatever it is. Fill in the way. So I definitely think there's a positive cycle there. And then I think what you're maybe alluding to is like, well, what about when, you know, you're not getting those wins, right? Those like signs of progress. And then that's where your interest can diminish. I mean, absolutely. But I think that is one of the challenges of, of deliberate practice. So when you practice something in the very beginning, really almost anything, you actually do get better pretty fast. I mean, send a kid down a ski slope 20 times. I mean, like they will get better. First year teachers get a whole lot better in their first year. Right. So what happens in your second, third, fourth year of skiing or teaching or math? Or, you're getting better, but you're getting better in uh, less noticeable ways, right? So there aren't these huge jumps in your uh, progress. I think for a lot of people, that's when they get off the learning curve and they get on a new one. You know, I was in an Uber um, this month, uh, actually last month, and the Uber driver just struck me as like, especially smart and insightful. So I had to ask, I was like, so, you know, what's your, like, what's your life story? And he was telling me that, you know, basically every two to three years, he would go into something, he would get really into it. He would find it really exhilarating. You know, he, he did 
uh, like he worked in a bank. He, you know, he, he worked in as a like investing consultant and then sales. He, and then he would like kind of start to plateau. Like he would start to, you know, not be visibly better from day to day to day. And then he was like, yeah, and then I lose interest and then I move on to something else. Um, and I think one of the challenges to realize that what the advanced learner is getting is not these like huge leaps, you know, it's not like, oh, I can actually stand up on my skis now, right? It's mm-hmm. it's very small gains. But I think the pleasure of having these like nuanced micro improvements, I think, I mean, I will say as somebody who has devoted herself to one thing, you know, psychology, I appreciate these small, small gains. And I have learned to take pleasure in those learning jumps that are maybe even only noticeable to me. Mm-hmm. And I think with children, you know, you, we have to help them through that, right? I think when you're a young person, you know, you don't, you don't know what the, you know, how this thing works. And I think for a lot of kids, it's like, oh, this is boring or like, oh, I'm not, <laughs> I, I didn't get better today. Right. So I guess I should like not do this anymore. Maybe I'll go try that other thing. And I think, you know, that's where a parent can say, hey, you know what, there were actually, you know, these plateaus, you can get through them, but, but even though you're not getting like hugely better, you're still getting better. I mean, I think that's why we, you know, that's why children need other people to raise them. We, we talk about that at the end of our book, The OK Plateau. And I think Jonathan Forrest, the guy who actually coined that phrase, it's like he asked the question, like, as much as we've all typed in our life, we should all be typing like 110 words per minute. And you go through that initial curve of getting competent, but then you get good enough. And if you're not really engaged in those rewards, you don't keep the deliberate practice going to keep getting better. And I'm I'm squarely in the typing, you know, mediocrity group, which is not something I should be proud of. Which is okay because, um, you know, so I, I think I, you're, he, he's absolutely right, right? There, there are these plateaus in skill development because people, you know, you essentially put things on autopilot. I think when you sit down to type your emails, you're not like, how do I type faster, right? You're just, you're, you're thinking about your email content, not about your typing. And I honestly think that's okay. From my perspective, what it means to be gritty is not only to be devoted to one thing, but by definition to not be devoted to everything else. Right. So if, if we spent more time together, you would be shocked at how ignorant I am. Like, I don't know almost anything about politics. I'm like, I'm always getting the sports confused. I was like, NFL, like that's football. Right. And then NBA, basketball. I, I don't, you know, no, I don't know the 50 states like, you know, by heart in a map. Like, you know, because I don't, Dakota. come on, yeah, no, don't ask me the hard ones. Right. <laughs> something easy like Florida. So, so the thing is, is that like, I don't care about my typing either. And I also don't care about my, my running or other, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be good at one thing. And I think that the key in, to me is like about this okay plateau, or I like to call it the plateau of arrested development, where you're just sort of like cruising along, you're not getting any better, is that it, in all the things that you don't care about, I think that's totally fine. Yeah. And the one thing that you do care about, you should just know that there is more learning that you could have done. And if you make the intentional choice to sit at sit it where you are, then that's fine. But you should, that choice is, I think, should be intentional. Yeah, Let, let's go into that. Because when you and I spoke on the phone a few weeks ago, I was actually really surprised at how much you do narrow your focus, which is where there's incredible alignment between what you write about and, and, and what Jay and Gary wrote about. What are the things that you say no to? I mean, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? I'm Angela Duckworth. I'm having an awesome hair day. Things are coming my way, but I'm focusing. Awesome hair day, actually. My hair looks usually much worse than this, so (laughs) count yourself fortunate. Okay, so I think, you know, and I I actually loved your book. I read read the whole thing on a flight, um, and I thought it was really helpful. So great job on that. And, you know, in terms of my one thing, you know, my one thing is to use psychological science to help children thrive. And so that's the filter, right? So this webinar, it's like, oh, okay, you know, in some way, shape or form, I had to think to myself and I did, I was like, oh, you know, they're also trading in this, in this like industry of trying to figure out like things that are helpful to people. Right. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, let me do that. Right. That, you know, that could help me learn more about, about my science and that would help kids. So anything that doesn't pass that test, you know, I, I try not to do, I mean, I'm not perfect at it, but I'm trying to. So if somebody asks me to give a talk and I say like, oh, okay, well, I'll give a talk if you'll make a donation to my nonprofit, right? And if the donation's big enough, then yeah. But otherwise, no, I'm not coming to New York City to do your, you know, hedge fund like dinner. Um, so I think that's my rule. I would say that um, the other thing about this one thing for the grit perspective is 
it doesn't mean, it means a narrowing of the focus in a very specific way. So it doesn't mean that you um, only like think about things in one way or that you're narrow-minded. It just means that in the sense that like everything that you experience, right? Every movie you see, every conversation you have, uh, every relationship that somehow in your head, because you're so devoted to the one thing that is your passion, you filter everything through that. So I'll give you a specific example. So I'm like on my, my exercise bike, uh, like watching Top Chef this morning, right? And you could say like, oh, middle-aged lady on her recumbent exercise bike, like watching Top Chef in the morning, but in, in, in which is true. yeah absolutely i mean i'll I'll own that but like while i'm watching that and honestly anything else i hear or when i read your book or it's like it comes to this filter of like what does this mean for grit and what does this mean for psychology and and how could this eventually help kids grow so for example there's a chef right and the chef is talking about um how he got you know these outtakes right so the chef is talking about how he got interested in food is like right before he got eliminated and you know you talk he was like you know my my dad was an engineer and my mom was you know artistic and like you know in a way like cooking is both those things and when i when i found cooking it was like it connected in something in me that was already there and i was like oh my god like stop the exercise bike like go run and write that down because because everything is relevant so to have the one thing as your focus doesn't mean necessarily that you're narrow-minded, but it's like everything comes back to your obsession in some way. And you know, the bonus of that is you're never bored. Like you could be in line at Starbucks for like half an hour and you're still not bored because, oh, now that's really interesting. What is the barista doing? Like, oh, that's related to psychological science. Like that's going to help me figure out this problem that I think about 24-7. That's I love that that story in particular because I, I remember watching with Gary. I'm like, here's someone, I don't think he's a workaholic, but my wife goes, I think he's a thinkaholic. <laughs> and the reason why is he'd go to the movies and we'd be like, what movie did you see this weekend? And he'd go see, I don't know, you know, let's just say Raiders of the Lost Ark, but he would have learned this amazing business lesson from it. Exactly. I'm like, I'm like, do you ever turn it off? And at first I was distressed, like I wanted him to relax. And I would give him novels, like you need to read a novel, no more business books for you. But it's always the same experience because what he's really passionate about is the filter through which he sees everything. And if it doesn't match that, it doesn't always get through. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly what I'm talking about. And again, you know, you you began the conversation by asking about, you know, how can people get more of it? And I said, look, not everybody wants to get more of it. But I will say this, you know, when you are this way, it is it is a very it's not an easy life, but it's never boring. And you're it's there's a kind of gratification in like everything being relevant to you, right? Like it's it's to me, you know, like uh, better than actually having a carefree life or like a pleasant life. So I'm curious, you you said your one thing really is how psychology can help children. And you and I kind of broke the seal a little bit on the phone when we started talking about kids' education. I am a father to two very young kids. And I look at my childhood. I look at the adversity that I faced as a kid, which when I was that age, I perceived as a bad thing. Today, I realized, wow, what a gift, because I now have a thicker skin and I do persist until I get to where I want to go. I would consider myself to be a gritty person. I look at my kids now and I go, all right, they're little cute pieces of Play-Doh that I can shape however I want. How do we instill grit in our children? The age old question or one of them is, you know, is is trauma or suffering the crucible of character? Right. And mm-hmm. Nietzsche's quote, you know, um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. But, but I would say this, there's a lot of nuance there. And um, one thing the scientific evidence is pretty clear on is that when you look at in general, like with big data sets, what is the effect of trauma generally, like or growing up poor or growing up in chaos or like without good schools or you know lack of opportunity or you know being discriminated against? Like generally not a happy movie. I mean, generally these are not like, oh, and they all went to the Olympics and are millionaires. It's like, no, generally like awfulness generally leads to more awfulness. But here's where the nuance comes in. I think it's really important. All, all children do need a, an amount of challenge, discomfort, dissonance. You know, my own children, I love them dearly. But I remember when my younger daughter 
Um, and my older daughter too, but you know, I remember my younger daughter just like, I'd come home and like left to her own devices, you know, she would do the net, like sit on the couch and eat Doritos and like watch movies, right? Like if I let her be in her comfort zone, she would never really grow. Um, and so um, I think it's a fundamental principle of human learning, which is that we never learn or grow or adapt unless we're forced to. And it's mm-hmm. the job of the parent, I think, then to create not huge amounts of challenge, not like unacceptable or unmeetable challenges, but just the appropriate, right? You just have to stretch your kids. I think the idea is consistently stretching your kids a small amount so they're consistently uncomfortable and, and they get used to being like pushed forward and pushed forward. I think this is why parents sign their kids up for music, for sports, you know, send them to an academically rigorous school, not so that they can have some like once in a lifetime trauma, but just so they can be pushed constantly <laughs> where they can't, you know, can't comfortably do it. And then like, you know, they adapt and they grow. The thing that you need in combination with this constant challenge is a support. And I think that this finding is also rock solid in the scientific evidence. One of the most predictive uh, factors for success among uh, like anyone who's been studying any socioeconomic group is a solid relational support system. Like Mm. you need someone who loves you. I mean, to not to put a fine point on like someone has to care about you. People who are not cared about, who are uh, lonely, who feel like uh, nobody loves them, almost invariably uh, from any background, those people do, don't do well. So as a father, I would, my recommendation is put your children in uncomfortable positions, uh, be prepared for them to uh, not want to go to the camp, not want to finish the season, you know, to whine a little, to complain, to not want to practice. Your job is to force them a little bit outside of their comfort zone. But then also your job as a parent is to provide that unconditional support. So at the core, they have a confidence, um, Mm -hmm. That that you know that they're worthwhile, you know that they're beloved. Can you give an example of what that looked like with your kids, of where you had to stretch them, challenge them, and how what those conversations looked like, so you were the supportive parent? Well, I'm going to jump in because this is my favorite chapter of your book. I mean, book, the hard thing rule. So just like summarize that, and you have to share us what your hard thing was because that was one of the questions I wrote in the margin of my book. <laughs> so we, we my, our family family of four, my husband and I, Jason and I. I have two girls. They're now 14 and 15 years old. So they're squarely in teenage years. But uh, all, all ever since they've been uh, in kindergarten anyway, we had a rule that we actually live by and we call it the hard thing rule. And it is that everyone in our family, everyone in the Duckworth family has to do a hard thing. Mom, dad, both girls. And um, that is defined by deliberate practice. So right. they knew when even they were very young that they had to do something that was uncomfortable and difficult for them that was skill-based. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, like going to pottery class when really all you do is throw mud around and eat goldfish crackers, like that doesn't count as hard thing, right? But learning how to play the violin, that does count, right? Because you're asked to play a piece, you're asked to like memorize it, you you know, you you have to practice. So um, my kids actually cycled through a number of hard things. And one feature of the hard thing rule is that it has to be hard. But the second feature is that uh, you are allowed to quit, but you have to finish the season, right? Okay. We don't let our kids quit in the middle of things, you know, un- they unless they're injured. Or- right? And they get to but- choose. And they get to choose. The third thing is that they get to choose that hard thing themselves. So, so it's got to be hard. Can't quit in the middle, but you do get to choose it yourself. And even when they were very young, we let them choose, you know, multiple choice, but they still got to choose. And so they cycle through one another. So currently my older daughter is passionate and very hardworking about running cross country and track. And then my younger daughter is, uh, you know, doing her hard thing as viola. Okay. Practices are, and I'll just say this, two things, you know, there was a time in, the, in their um, childhoods where like every other parent, right? Just because I'm an expert on grit doesn't mean I'm necessarily a great parent. Um, trying my best like anyone else, but uh, just like any parent, I'd be like nagging them to, you know, practice this or like, don't forget, you know, you have to print out the meat schedule or you're supposed to do your stretches. And um, I did pause and think like, oh God, this is not like the world-class achievers that I study, right? Like, you know, I have to nag them. But a, a funny thing happened just in the last year. And that is that I don't have to nag them for anything anymore. I mean, they wake up, they set their own alarm. You know, they're like going on um, YouTube to look at the videos for how to get better. You know, they stay up late, you know, working on the things that they need to work on without any impetus from us, from 
the parents. And I would say that in research on champions and super champions, and that distinction in athletics is like, you know, yeah, these people are champions when they're playing at the national level, but you're a super champion when you've like reached the end, like achievement even within the national level, right? So uh, when you look at super champions, they, they do not have parents who are overly you know, uh, like involved, they have some involvement at the level of like nagging a young kid to like, you know, practice. But um, at some level, the kid knows that it's their own choice. And that is why I have our kids pick their own hard thing. If I said, yeah, you got to finish what you began, you know, you can't quit in the middle, you know, it has to be hard. And mommy picks it for you. Then I think they would never have turned the corner internalizing it themselves. All right, so you missed the last question. So is your hard thing the recumbent so, bike or watching Top Shelf or something else? So my hard thing is um, is my job. So I work 70 hours a week and sometimes more. And so uh, my husband also said, you know, his hard thing is his job. I mean, he also says running, but but uh, yeah, the parents kind of took the easy way out. We we're like, yeah, it's what we do. <laughs> All, right. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Personal accountability, yeah. I love it. The- <laughs> When I was like chatting with folks on Facebook and asking like, oh my gosh, we get to talk with Angela Duckworth, one of my favorite books. Like the parenting was a big theme. We have a lot of people who are working parents. So thank you for sharing that great tip. What advice would you give us? Because the number two question, if I looked for a theme, is how do we help instill grit within our teams? A lot of small business owners, a lot of department heads, and they're like, they get the value you know, like when you've got someone on your team who's got grit and you're like, yay, like how do we coach the other members of the team to kind of be on that path? It's a great question. And I'm, you know, not not like, I'm sure many people who are listening to this run really big teams, right? And my little team running this lab, we call it Character Lab, and we have 18 people more or less, right? So, so we're growing, but we're roughly a dozen and a half uh, and a half dozen people. So, um, so I asked this question too, right? Like, how do I build a gritty culture? So I think the first lesson is this, you know, if you are a gritty leader, you are already halfway there because people are watching you. I mean, that's what a leader is. Their eyes are on you. They're going to mimic, they're going to hopefully admire and ultimately emulate what you do. So if you come in early, and you stay late and you own your own mistakes and you model for them. I try to do this very intentionally. And I think this does take modeling to a next level. Now, if you can model with intention, now that you know you're being watched, right? right. Then, then you very carefully phrase those emails. Or I try to go out of my way and tell my team as one specific example, if you're going to be gritty, that means you're always going to be improving. If you're always going to be improving, then you really have to look at your shortcomings with a naked eye, right? And you have to ask for that feedback. So I, for example, sent out an email to my team uh, last Sunday, and uh, it talked about, uh, I had gone to see a uh, Sheryl Sandberg uh, give a talk about her new book, right? And it was great. And she option was fantastic. B, yeah. yeah, option B. Yeah, with my colleague and my friend, Adam Grant. So it's a, it's a fantastic co-authored book. And I saw them both on stage. And I really thought that... Um, that uh, Cheryl in particular was a masterful public speaker. And as I was leaving, my colleague and I, and this is all in my email to my team because I'm intentionally modeling. So I had this happen to me, but I decided to very intentionally share it with my team in a particular way. So we're leaving the theater and my colleague says to me, wow, what a natural, you know, what a gift, right? You know, she just, you, you can't teach that. It's just, you know, she's such a fluent speaker. Um, you know, there's just parts in there that, you know, that's just, like God-given more or less, right? And I, I remember then engaging in a little conversation about that because in my experience uh, as a speaker, uh, I have gone to a certain level, but but what people don't see are all the speeches that came before that were, you know, more and more imperfect. And so, uh, so I, you know, wrote this all down in an email. And then I said to my team, like, I've had the personal experience of being called a natural. And I know all those hours, uh, all those missteps that went into it, that that nobody really sees. Um, and if you put in all that work and push through the okay plateau, as you guys might put it, or as other might put it, uh, then then you might someday be called a natural, but you too will know that that's not how you got there. So that's modeling, but it's very intentional. Um, and I think that the the leaders that I've interviewed, you know, the CEOs and the professional athletic coaches, Olympic coaches, they will also say that um, the work is never done. So you would think that you could like send out that inspiring email, you know, give a good uh, kind of all team meeting and then be done with it. But it is a daily discipline. It's like 
retell the story, tell it another way, show it again, show it in a different way, you know, call out the work of somebody who's working for you who models it. So I think that is, I think that, I, you know, I, I could go on, but I think those are the most important things, I think, in terms of leading for and, uh, and developing an organizational culture of grit. Love it. Thank you. What, what about standards? Because that's been a, a big talk internally here at Keller Williams. Um, Gene Rivers said standards without consequences are merely suggestions. Almost forgot that one. That's but a good one. <laughs> that is a good one. Almost blurted on that one. What does it look like as a gritty leader to enforce that as a standard, though? Well, I'll, I'll be completely honest in our nonprofit. You know, I worry about nonprofits. We're a nonprofit because we want to advance the science and the practice of character development, including grit. So I don't want to make a profit, but I worry about nonprofits because I think sometimes they can lack the discipline of the for-profit marketplace. And I think you can you can get into this territory where everyone's nice and they might be actually working hard and nice, but there's no bottom line. So it's sort of like, well, we're, we're nice, we're hard, but frankly, we're mediocre. And I think mediocrity is, you know, I, you know I mean, like I'm, I'm, you know, did not um, start this nonprofit to make it a mediocre one. So that's all about standards, right? So um, a couple of months ago, we had an all-team retreat, and um, I said to our team, like, all right, well, like, this is where we are. This is world-class. There is a huge gap between where we are and world-class on every dimension of everything we do. Think about what you do all day. Think about this event that we have, this project, this platform. None of it is good enough. Like what you are doing today is not good enough. And what I am doing today is not good enough. So so the thing is, is this, I, I, I think that it is the job of a leader to just like a parent always be pushing people into an uncomfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. Like you want to be the opposite of complacent. You want to be the opposite of comfortable. And I think as a leader, you have to do one more thing. And frankly, you have to do it as a parent. Once you give people a vision of what they could be, and you articulate and you give them models and you show them like, see this hotel, see how beautifully it's built. Like, well, that's what I want the analogous thing to be what you're doing here. And you, you give them these models. I still think they need something else. Kids and team members, they need a path. I mean, I think for most of them, if you just gave them the world-class model, if you're like, there's Katie Ledecky, this is world-class. Even if they made the leap to like what, what they are doing in their own work, they still need a, they need rungs on a ladder, you know? So so I think that is the job of management, right? That's not inspirational leadership. That's like, you know, I, I recently met with an entire track team. They have a great coach. They're highly, um, they're rated 25th in the country and they're they're kind of playing far above what anybody, what the previous stats would have suggested before this coach. And so in the, in the player's words, it would say, not only does the coach provide this high standard, this vision of world-class, on a daily basis, at 3.30, you're going to do this. At 4 o'clock, you're going to do it. Here are the stretches. This is the routine. It gets very technical, but you have to also provide that because this abstract inspiration, I think, is not enough for mm-hmm. a kid or for a team member. I love that. You made me think of um, a very short book that I read, and I just remember the title. It was um, Pleased But Never Satisfied. Mm-hmm. And how like it's that balance as a leader with your standards. Like You can be really pleased, but we can do better. And that insistence. And uh, you also made me think on my wife's team, we have a real estate team. So they're independent contractors, not quite volunteers in a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. But we challenged them all to do a 66-day challenge to build a better habit to make them better at what they were most passionate about. And then when you're talking about the instance following up, I know that on our team, our operations manager made a point that every team meeting, they'd say, hey, how is everybody doing? Just so that they knew it wasn't like that one email, there was going to be follow-up. They might actually have to do this and share. So that might be an example of, you know, us stumbling onto the right track. Have you you ever heard of commitment cards? Like LaSalle football team and these commitment cards, these like index cards that... So... um, there's this legendary football coach, something like the winningest coach in, you know, American high school football history. Is this De La Salle? Um, it's in California, I think. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like you've heard about this. I told you I'm not a sports fan, so I'm going to get I, I, I screwed up. I was unfortunate of actually playing against them in high school. No way. Really? I assume they won. They did. Yeah. Oh. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you think about this like unbroken string and I can't remember how many victories it was in a row, six, I think something ridiculous, crazy, right? Like, and and anybody who actually does know about sports knows how crazy that really is. Right. With, you know, with weather, with injuries, with just luck and, and all these other teams, you know, when the thing is when you're number one, everybody's chasing you. Right. So it's like, it's amazing that you can stay on top like that. So what this coach has done, I think, is not recruit like a genetically superior group of kids. It's really actually creating a culture. Um, and one of the things they did are, uh, in this culture is these commitment cards. So these kids get these like, you know, index cards every week. And each player is paired up with another player. And on that card, you write three goals, a practice goal, like a performance goal, and I think a game day goal. And mm-hmm. they're very specific. And then, and here's the thing. You trade cards with your partner and your partner stands up in the locker room and reads your card out loud to everyone else. Um, And and you are accountable now, like not only to the group, but to this very specific person. And then they rotate. Right. So you're you know, so this also builds team cohesion. And I think, um, you know, a lot of things are going right in something like that. You know, you've got this public display of commitment, um, which as a psychologist, I will tell you, there are many studies that show that when you say out loud what you're going to do, it's very different than when it's private for yourself. You've got this very specific relationship with the individual, but also by having it ritualized, it's not like a one and done, right? I think so many times companies do things and it's like, there's a lot of energy and like, there's no follow-up. But this is like every kid who goes through LaSalle football, like they all do it. You do it every week. So it's uh, it's the opposite of a flash. I mean, you know, it's it's like it's it's kind of a habit at the group level, right? Um, and I think that's what rituals are. They're habits at the group level. And no. I think um, all the great organizations that I know have these very very strong rituals that define them as an organization. For everybody who is watching this right now, I want to. We're going to shift into Q and A. So now is your time to submit your questions that you have for Angela. Because I want to make sure that we give you the opportunity to interact with her, with us being your proxy. Um, Angela, one of the things that Bernadette asked is, she said, um, first and foremost, thank you for being here. And she said, what's the one thing in your opinion? By doing so, other things would be easier, or unnecessary when it comes to being gritty. Like we we talk about sixty six days to form a habit. How does that come into play when you look at developing grit or doing the hard things? That's a great question. Yeah, it's sort of if you, you know, the one thing meets grit, right? So that's the, that question comes out of that. By the way, I have to say about habit that uh, the number of days does vary like across yes. studies. So as you know, I know you guys know this, 18 but- to, 18 um, days to 254 in the study we cite. And I right? make that point, yeah. But I also know that there is a psychology of like, if you tell people like 18 to 250 men, like that doesn't work either. So there's a reason why you have a 66 day challenge and there's yep. a whole psychology behind that too. So that's good. That's good psychology. But um, so I would say that the one thing would be this. And, and um, I think- the thing that I took away from the book is that you're not saying it's the only thing. It's just like the one thing that makes other things easier or, or, or unnecessary. So I think the, the one thing I would start with that makes everything else easier is to really have a vision, to really actually be able to write down in 10 words or fewer what everything else is for, right? So it mm-hmm. took me actually a couple months to come up with that sentence to use psychological science to help kids thrive. That is my one thing that I'm working for. My vision took me a while to get there. Actually took me years if you really count, but it took me a couple months to get the wording right. When you can write down that vision and you can wake up for a few days in a row and say, yep, that's still me. That's who I am. I'm willing to give up other things for that one thing. Does it solve all your problems? No, but I think it helps enormously to make your whole life then efficient. Because now things are aligned. And actually, um, you know, the great Will Smith, who's one of my idols, and I finally got to meet him. I'm so gritty. I like stalked him for a decade and I finally got to meet him. And one of the things he said was, harmony is aerodynamic. And the context of that was a conversation where I was asking him, you know, what he now thought about how to be successful. And he said, you know, when you're, when you really know what you want, right? And it's, it's not a um, unreflective choice. It's an intentional, reflective, I, this is who I am. This is what I want. It really does make everything else easier. Right. I love that. We talked about that in our book through the lens of when you kind of have a sense of your purpose, it tells you what your priorities are. And yeah. when you're operating your priorities, you are kind of by default being as productive as you can be because you're doing the most important stuff. 
it's kind of like, that's the way we lined it up and the way you said it, you know, what advice would you give people? This is the most challenging thing for us. When people say, it feels really, really big to write those 10 words. And I usually say, don't worry, you don't have to go get it tattooed on your back tomorrow, right? But like, you still have to start that process. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give people in trying to find their 10 words? Well, I was just with Michael Gervais, um, the sports psychologist who works with the Seattle Seahawks. And he has all the players. And in fact, you know, he works with companies too, like Microsoft. And he has any client that he works with actually use 25 words. He's like, if you say 10 words, it just puts too much pressure on people. Um, And I pointed out that most people that I study actually can get it down to fewer than 10 words, right? I mean, sometimes it's two words, right? Sometimes start somewhere. I get it. We'll start with 25. We'll narrow it down to 10. If we're really in the advanced class, we'll get it. like Jedi mode or something. But I do think like start writing something. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, you know, you could also uh, think about it this way. You you know, like if like there are a lot, the people that I worry about most are, it's not that they're doing the wrong thing. It's they're doing nothing, right? Right. It's like, oh, that sounds like too hard. Like, oh, I don't know where to start. Like, oh, like writing the book, like they're doing nothing. Actually, if you're doing the wrong thing, it's still a step. Right. Um, Yeah. You at least eliminated that path. You get no feedback doing nothing. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, write down something. I think most of us, if you took a blank piece of paper and a pencil um, and you just started writing, you know, about who you are and what you care about and what gives you joy, I think you would be on the path. My sons would be about his Xbox, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) (laughs) I I actually asked Jackie Bezos about that. I asked her, she's the mom of Jeff Bezos, who's pretty well for himself and is a paragon of grit. Um, I was very happy when he read my book. So I interviewed Jackie uh, because she is a uh, world-class mom, I guess, if you want to call it that. And I said, you know, she said uh, something that really caught me. She said, you know, when I was raising my kids, they called me Captain Chaos because I really tolerated like their crazy stuff, right? You know, one would be like trying to build an airplane in their bedroom and like the other would like tie all the cabinets. I mean, really crazy stuff. And I said, you know, it sounds so hippie. And so like anything goes and, and she said, Oh, you know that, but I also made, you know, Jeff play quarterback on a football team that he wasn't good enough to be on. And so she was tough too, but here's the thing that really caught me. So I said to her, I I tried to challenge her. I was like, what if your kid, you know, you're, you're talking about their passion and like letting that grow and, and having them just, you know, grope towards this thing that they'll eventually love. But like, what if it's Xbox, you know, like, what if it's like Minecraft? Or just like, what if they just want to sit around and like listen to like music videos? And so she actually said something that surprised me. She was like, well, um, you know, I would sit down and I would first, I would really listen. And then I would really want to hear like what they really like about Xbox. And I would really listen. Like, and, and I was like, oh God, I wouldn't do that. And then I thought to myself, I think that when kids are interested in things like video games, right? Or like, you know, listening to music, you know, I'm not saying they could all be video gamers for their lives, but I think actually we would probably do better as parents to at least start with what they are interested in and at least try to understand it, you know, Mm -hmm. and then try to see like, you know, what marketable skill or what like way to plug in is like, rather than like start with pre-med and pre-law and just ignore the fact that, you know, that's not where their interests are. So, so, you know, I think we could all learn a lot from Jackie Bezos. I've got a question from Yolanda. She said, um, I feel like I have grit, but some of the team members around her do not. Maybe they haven't been exposed to your book. Maybe they aren't familiar with what this idea is. How do you begin to even raise people's awareness of becoming a gritty person to test if there is an interest? Because she doesn't need to say this. I'll say start by reading the book, folks. I'm not going to say that. How do you get other people to read the book? Give it to them. Oh my God, that's a good answer. Okay. <laughs> I know that you're too humble to but, say that, but you can also answer if you've got other advice. Well, you know, it is an interesting question. I think um, uh, I, I will say this. You know, there's a there's a really old research study that I was reading the other day. It was on littering, right? I think the study is like 40 years old and it was a psychological experiment. How do you get people not to litter? And in one condition, you know, you ask people not to litter and you like tell them why they shouldn't litter. Like you do all the things that like are, you know, all these public service announcements, like, you know, whatever, it's your community, you know, keep it clean. And then there's another condition where you actually like thanked people for not littering. Like you, you more or less implied that they were already uh, not littering. And the difference in these conditions is in one, you're kind of, um, you know, 
looking for people's weaknesses and then like asking them to improve upon them. And the other, you're you're doing uh, something subtly different, which is you're assuming that they're going to do the right thing, and you're kind of almost pre-praising them for like, thank you for you know doing this something thing. That's so great. Well, you maybe think it's not Anson Doris. It was one of the coaches for the women's national team. And it was the title for his or her book. And I'm, I'm, but it was Catch Them Being Great. Oh, I know that book. Yeah. Cause I was doing all this research on soccer (laughs) and Anson Doris. Yeah. Yeah. Catching them for being great, catching and naming it, right? Like catching excellence, like naming it. So I guess one thing. I love it that you put your napkin on your lap tonight. (laughs) Right? Right? Yeah. yeah, and you gotta, and you do have to, because if there's nothing you can find in your colleagues that is at all gritty, or like they never demonstrate passion, they never work hard, well, that's another story. But my guess is that there is, and I'm not saying that I'm really good at this, but um, you know, I was taking a taxi cab home once with my mom. I had just this is years ago. I had spinal fusion surgery, and it was like, you know, they like take you apart and then they put you back together, and there's this brace. And I got into this taxi, and it was in San Francisco, all these hills, and you're really fragile, right? Because you're pretty much a mess and you're just being held together by bolts. And my mom is in the taxi with me and this cab driver is like the worst cab driver ever. He's like flying over the hills, like diving into the potholes. And I'm literally thinking to myself, like my back isn't even going to be in one piece by the time we get to my apartment. So my mom leans forward and she says, I just wanted to say thank you. You're such a great taxi driver. My daughter just had spinal fusion surgery. And because of you, She's going to get home safely. And as a mom, I want to tell you how much that means to me. (laughs) This guy drove me home like I was, you know, a glass vase. So I think that there is a a sophistication here in psychology. Sometimes you see the weaknesses because they're there and you point them out and you try to get. But maybe we would do better by actually like hunting down people's strengths. Kiva said, if, if you have grit towards some aspect of your life that is not your job, does that mean I'm in the wrong profession? Mm, you know, there are a lot of people for whom they find their passion outside of work hours, right? I mean, sometimes it's like singing in their church choir or like they're like an avid gardener, right? Or, you know, or a home cook. So first of all, I think there is a legitimate way to live your life though. I mean, you know, for a lot of people that that's, you know, they, they, they earn a living and they're very capable, but like then they go off and do the things they love. So does that mean you're in the wrong job? It means that there probably is a job that you would feel more passionate about. But I think when you write a book, like you guys uh, have this experience too. I mean, I, I, I feel like, you know, you got to be careful about giving advice too generally because I don't know people's financial circumstances. I don't know about their student loans. You know, I don't know about what opportunities there are. So all well and good for somebody like me to say like, oh, you know, follow your passion, cultivate your passion, do something that's a calling. But there are financial realities. It it does suggest to me that if you could think for a moment about how your avocation or this thing that you love after work, how it's different from your work. And uh, and what to do with that gap, right? Like, well, maybe it'll mean switching jobs and maybe it'll just mean, I'll give a specific example. I really love food. I mean, I love psychology, but I could have probably been a chef. And I watch, you know, every food show. I've watched like, like dozens of documentaries. I read cookbooks at night. I read food reviews of restaurants I'll never go to. And I'm not going to become a chef because I have my one thing and it's not actually being a chef. But like when we have an event, I make sure the food is the best food ever. Like there, you know, when I study psychology and I'm like, oh, I need to, you know, write about a grit paragon. I like to write about like Eric Repair or, you know, Mark Vetri, like those chefs that like, so there are ways I think that you can think about what your avocation, your hobby is, think about your work and, and just see where that takes you. Maybe there are ways to bring that in, you know, maybe you'll make a detour into a different career, but but I think mindfully reflecting on what it is that you so love and why you love it uh, is a really good way to begin to craft a calling. That's great advice. I love that. And I, I've had that question thrown at me because we have that purpose part in our book. And I'm always wary because I don't want someone like they love to fish, go become a professional fisherman. <laughs> because I've also talked to those people who then hate fishing for fun. Like they've taken their only hobby and now now it feels like work. And so I think um, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, I don't know, like the whole flow. Like yeah. I remember reading that section where people tended to find that state of greatest fulfillment in their work, either when they had a job that challenged them 
And a lot of times they just sought that out with their hobbies and how important both of them were. So yeah, I would only add that. Like sometimes it's great to have a hobby that you're passionate about outside of work. I think that's right. And, you know, not, not everyone's going to have that. You know, some people it's like work and play. There's no division. So that's one thing. But but I, I think there are a lot of people for whom, you know, and the same principles apply, by the way. And and, and by that, I mean, you know, if you're going to have this hobby that you really love, you know, for a lot of people, it'd be interesting to them. It will some often have a beyond the self-purpose. They will actually practice, you know, to get better at it. And even with hobbies, you know, there could be setbacks and so forth. So, you know, in a, in a way, there is this parallel universe of what you're doing outside of work, I think the same basic psychological principles still apply. Well, Wendy Papazan asked, oh. Um, oh, there you go. No preferential treatment here. What are two to four books that have influenced the trajectory of your research? And I'll, I'll, I could even broaden it, just two to four books that must reads. That I really love. Um, I I love Peak by Anders Ericsson. Uh, Anders Ericsson, who's the world expert on world experts, and he's the one who brought us the term deliberate practice. It's yeah. it's not only a great book content wise, and it is exactly what Anders Ericsson is thinking right now. So it keeps it's completely up to date. It's really well written. I mean, I just think it, you know, you gotta have a book that you can actually read too, right? So there's that. Growth mindset to me was a model. Carol Dweck's book, which I think is something like. I don't know, a bajillion copies in print. I've never met a CEO or a coach who does not already own growth mindset. Um, and, and I think there's a lot to be said about, about that. And then I guess beyond that, I would say that, you know, every memoir that I've read, you know, there's, there's the, the, the stories. I mean, I think when I look at somebody's life and, you know, their missteps and then this happened and that happened, this, and this, like, I, for me, uh, just collectively, like that's where a lot of my inspiration comes from. And some people would say, well, that's not very scientific, but that's where the hypotheses come from, right? And then you go off into science, but I think it always starts with stories. Love it, love it. Cool. Well, Angela, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Angela. Thank really you. appreciate it. I had such a ball. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there you have it, our conversation with Angela Duckworth, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Grit. If you have not had a chance to read or listen to Grit yet, we highly recommend that you do that. A few things that Jay and I sat in his office for probably an hour after this just talking. We were both on a, on a super high after this conversation. The first thing that we really loved was the idea that rituals are habits at a group level. We talk a lot on the One Thing Podcast about habits, about taking the right actions and making them power habits that stick. But what does it look like to cascade that in an organization, to cascade that across your family, across your relationships? What are some of the things that have worked for you that you may have an opportunity to impact the people that you care about, whether that be your colleagues or your loved ones, by taking those habits to a group level and making them rituals? I also love what she said in terms of leadership, Modeling with intention, identifying those teaching opportunities that, that you can educate others through your actions. How can you become the type of person who shows up in the world as an educator, as a person who improves the lives of people around you by simply how you move, how you walk, how you talk, how you write, how you communicate. I had a lot of light bulbs go off in that moment and it's just, it's just loved it. And then finally, I love what she said about vision. Can you write down in 10 words or less what all this is for? What are you doing all of this for? 10 words or less. Or Jay and I thought we like the idea of, of expanding it out to 25, get a win, get it under 25 words, and then you can work it down to 10. But can you sit down and articulate very clearly why you're here, what all this is for in 10, 25 words or less? We really challenge you to do that. And we would love to see your answers. Post them on our Facebook page. If you go to facebook.com slash the one thing book, we would love to see your guys' answers. This is about building a community, a community that not only consumes great content, but that takes action. And that's what this is. So please be sure to join us for our future webinars. If you go to the one thing.com slash webinar, you can see who's on deck. We're currently reaching out to some really exciting people. So I'm looking forward to bringing that to you. In fact, today I just uh, spoke with the guy who was the executive vice president of Disney World. He was in charge of building Disney's culture. 
and uh, he's going to be coming on hopefully in the next few months. So we got some big hitters lined up for you guys. You will absolutely love it. And should you miss it live, we will definitely be featuring them here on the One Thing Podcast. Know that we appreciate you. You are investing your most valuable resource, your time, not only in educating yourself, but doing it with us. We do not take that lightly. We really do appreciate it. And for those of you who have said, I want all the upcoming episodes to be to come to my device directly, who have subscribed to the show, thank you. For those of you who have left us a rating and review, thank you. We read every single one. And you know what? Those people who check out the podcast who aren't sure what it's for, that's the thing that they look at. They look for your feedback. So thank you for helping us. We really do appreciate it. And we'll see you in the next episode.